So, you know, because I have, uh, I, honestly, I've always had a relatively good health, relatively healthy person. I don't think I ever fully realized just how debilitating it would be to lose one of your senses. Uh, and until, as you know, I temporarily lost my hearing last month. And I confess, and, and I guess I apologize to those of you who have to live with that daily, with that kind of thing. Because uh, I, I really had no idea how isolating and disorienting a loss of hearing can be. Uh, and I think that's probably equally true with, with any of our five human senses, right? That having uh, one or more of them compromised or weakened in some kind of way really alters the trajectory of your entire existence. Which leads me directly to our primary scripture text for today. Uh, in our continuing in-depth look at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, because in the portion that we're going to look at today, our Lord gave a very eye-opening piece of advice on not only how we perceive the world around us, but on how that perception can fundamentally alter the course of our lives in this world and in the next. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles. I'm going to be reading, as I have been through this series, the first uh, two verses of Matthew chapter 5 and then jumping into our primary text. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. And so seeing the crowds, he meaning Jesus, of course, went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and this is Matthew six twenty-two: the eye is the light of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. God, our Father, Give us this morning single-mindedness to hear your word, to apply it to our hearts, and to desire to live it out for your sake and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we find ourselves this morning right in the middle of Jesus' epic teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I think maybe, just if it's in my opinion, perhaps the central message of the entire sermon is, which you cannot serve two masters. Because as our Lord says, you will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that's pretty apparent, right? Uh, especially to anybody who's ever tried to work two jobs at once. Anybody ever done that? Right. Because uh, you know if you've done that, at, at times you may be able to work the schedule and meet the requirement of both bosses. But inevitably, uh, one is going to conflict with the other. And you can't work from 11 to 7 in two different locations at the same time. So what do you do then? Which boss are you going to honor? Which request takes priority? Which one are you going to pick? And the obvious answer is you're going to show up at the job you like the best. Or, or let's say at least at the one you hate the least. Right? So, so practically speaking, you cannot serve two masters. And church, that is even more profoundly true when it comes to our relationship with God. But unfortunately, that hasn't stopped people from trying to do it. And all you have to do is take a look back through the pages of Scripture to see the results. Particularly when it comes to the nation of Israel. Because we know 
from its founding that the nation of Israel was formed and dedicated and set apart to serve God. But very, very early in that relationship, something happened where the people became split in their focus. And instead of being wholeheartedly devoted to the God that had rescued them, they turned their eyes to another. And if you remember the story, if you remember while Moses was still up on the mountain receiving God's law, that the people down on the plain were beginning to wonder if this Moses guy was ever coming back. And now who's going to take care of them? And who's going to meet their needs? And who's going to fill their wants and secure their future? And so the people urged Aaron to make a God for them to follow. And what does Aaron do? He takes their gold earrings, which they had brought out of Egypt, and he melted them down to make this golden idol of a calf. And the Bible says in Exodus 32, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a carving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, now obviously that's really bad. But let me show you why what Aaron did was infinitely worse. Because at least, at the very least, the people of Israel had picked a side. Uh, they, they had picked a new master, even though it was outright rebellion and a slap in the face to everything that God had done for them. But listen to what Aaron did. And, and I want you to see and think if it just sounds like what our Lord was warning about today. So if you continue on in verse 5, it says, When Aaron saw this, when he, when he saw the people worshiping the calf, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to what? The Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the whole people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So I want you to see what he did. Aaron is trying to play the two masters game, right? He built a golden calf, but he called it by the name of the Most High God. Right? He called it Jehovah. So he called it not just a Lord, but the Lord in all caps. And what Aaron is doing in his two masters game is what theologians call syncretism. It's what the American Heritage Dictionary defines as the reconciliation or the fusion of differing systems of belief into a uniform practice. That's, that's kind of a fancy way to say it. In my mind, the easiest way to imagine is like, imagine a synchronized swimming team or a pair of competitive dancers where there's two distinct individuals, but they're each performing the same routine in combination with each other. But guess what? The God of heaven and earth is never going to dance in anyone else's tune. No, no matter how much you may want him to. But God's people just kept on doing that. They kept trying to get God to play along with them. And about 500 years after this, when the kingdom of Israel split in the civil war, if you remember when King Jeroboam made off with 10 of the 12 tribes, decided he didn't want God's people to keep going back up to the temple in Jerusalem. And listen to what he said in 1 Kings 12. He said, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the hearts of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and he made what? He made two gold calves, right? And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. 
He also made temples on high places, appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, just like the feast that was in Jerusalem. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. And he made one in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So here's what Jeroboam did. He said, you know, you, you poor folks, you know, I, I know God said you should only make your sacrifices in one kind of way and just in one special place. But let, let me do you a favor. Because right? that, that's way too inconvenient. Uh, that, is, that is way too much bother for you to have to keep doing things in this old-fashioned way anymore. So here you go. I made you not one but two golden calves. And you can keep your festivals. Look, we'll even have one just like they have at the big temple in Jerusalem, just way less crowded, right? And, and hey, I'll even throw in a few other novelties too on different days and different times. I'm sure God won't mind. And, and on top of all that, wait till you hear this. Uh, Jeroboam said, I, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's very fair that only the Levites get to be priests. I mean, hey, we're all God's children, right? So, so let's give some other families a chance. And hey, maybe we'll throw in a few women too. Because remember, you know, when Moses wrote us those laws, that was like 500 years ago now. Uh, surely we're more enlightened than that now, right? What do you say? And so off they went trying to take the parts of the faith they liked and replace the ones they didn't, but still saying they were worshiping the God of Scripture. If you go from that point about 85 years ahead of then, things haven't really gotten any better. And we find the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel saying to the people in 1 Kings 18, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And so by this time, the people of God had kind of graduated from worshiping golden calves to worshiping the God Baal, who was this Canaanite God of increase and prosperity and fertility. Uh, the one, this, this God that was all the rage with the upper classes and the ruling elite and the fashionable people of the day. And, and some of the people actually worshipped Baal outright. And, and a few kind of worshipped the God of the Bible and added on Baal as being, you know, kind of one from among a pantheon of gods to pick from. But we actually know from archaeology that many in that region actually worshiped this weird kind of hybrid combo god which gave them an a la carte menu to pick from the parts and the attributes that they liked from the two different faiths and kind of mash them together and i'd be willing to bet maybe even a few people felt a little bit guilty about doing that but it sure made them look good to the neighbors and it sure made them acceptable to society and it sure put them in with the in crowd but how do you think god felt about all that well, after Elijah prayed about what was going on, God answered from heaven. And in 1 Kings 18 and verse 38, we're told, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And brothers and sisters, 
That is the fate of all who would dare to defy the commandments and the precepts of the Lord and to mix them with the whims of popular culture, which, which sadly is exactly, exactly what has happened to another nation and another people whose founding was to the glory of God uh, and to the advancement of true religion. And brothers and sisters, that nation is America, and that people is us. And our collective eyes in the church have gone dim while the worldly church around us serves the gods of their own making. The gods of prosperity and popularity and prevailing popular culture. And, and yeah, they paint over it a thin, thinly veiled veneer of Christianity, but all the while secretly loving the master that they have made more than the one that made them. And calling, as Isaiah said, evil good and good evil. And putting darkness for light and light for darkness. Until, as our Lord said today in our text, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Uh, and church, how great is the darkness in this world around us? And, and you know what? Most folks don't even see it. Because, you know, when Jesus referred to good eyes this morning, he meant eyes that not only see well, but also that perceive well. And like our other senses, our eyes can be used for that which is good or that which is evil. For that which is beneficial or that which is harmful. But if we allow ourselves to linger on evil, if we, if we let ourselves play around with it and tolerate it and appease it or, heaven forbid, become complacent to it or worship complicit with it, it may actually come to corrupt us and everything around us. Because, church, you cannot serve God and Baal. You cannot serve God and mammon, which are really the same thing because that's, that's what mammon is. Mammon is really the worshipped embodiment of personal fulfillment and worldly wealth. And you cannot serve two masters. As tempting as it might be, right? And, and we can admit that because uh, nobody wants to be in fear of missing out on, on what everybody else is doing, right? Um, no one wants to be on the outside of society looking in. No, nobody wants to be seen as a fanatic or a holier-than-thou figure or uptight and repressed or worse, worse yet, horror of horrors. Nobody wants to ever be called unkind. Because you know, that, you know that, that is the official 11th commandment of the Evangelifish Mammon Church, right? Thou shalt be nice. <laughs> Thou shalt be like Jeroboam and make religion comfortable and make religion convenient. And make religion all-inclusive. In fact, you know, just like we have our five points of Reformed theology in the acronym TULIP, the, the, the Church of Christian Mammon has a TULIP acronym too. Because, you know, Satan always tries to counterfeit everything that pertains to the genuine kingdom. And I want to just give you these quickly. The, the first point, or I guess the first theological principle of Mammon Christianity is the, the T for tolerance. Right? T tolerance is the ultimate unquestioned virtue. The, the, the underlying principle here being that all moral and theological truths are relative and equivalent, no matter what their source. Uh, and, and in their system of theology, one truth claim is as good as another. And nobody's truth is ever questioned unless they believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. Which would, of course, imply that some people are going to be in serious error in that situation. And as crazy as it's going to sound after telling you that tolerance is king, the second theological point of mammon Christianity is unthinking conformity. 
the unthinking conformity of majority or popular opinion, especially if it's supported by the mainstream media or the book publishing houses or educational institutions, because for the mammon Christian, acceptance and respectability are more important than truth. In fact, unthinking conformity is the very backbone of mammon Christianity. And the fact that they positively avoid serious analysis and independent thinking should not be confused with stupidity, although I, I admit there is often difficult to make a distinction. It really should be recognized this proclivity is the one that the book of Romans addresses as those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they know, but they're constantly in a state of denial because the real cause of unthinking conformity, brothers and sisters, is moral cowardice. The third theological point of mammon Christianity is L for liberty and not the good kind. But complete liberty of conscience in all things contrary to tradition and especially contrary to historic reform Christianity. In which there is a place for liberty of conscience. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. We don't always agree on every single thing. Uh, there is liberty of conscience in questions not addressed or given ethical preference in scripture. But Mammon Christianity has a remarkable tendency to apply this liberty to anything and everything that they choose. Because for the Mammon Christian, Scripture is not authoritative. And instead, their idea of liberty of conscience is completely self-centered deification of their own idols and their own wants. Fourth point of Mammon theology is the letter I for the notion that inequality is always evil. And don't mishear me, I am not talking about discrimination. There is no place for that here in this house of God. Because every week, if you look in our bulletin, our bulletin deliberately and boldly proclaims that God made all people from one man. And although we can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities, we are all one human race and absolute equals before God in creation, the need for repentance, and the offer of redemption. Amen. Right? Amen. There, there's, you want to know how many races there are? There's one. The human race. And we're it. But the mammon Christian blows past those righteous ideas and says things like everybody should have an equal vote whether you're a citizen or not. Or all students deserve equal grades even if they refuse to learn. And that everyone has a right to equal pay even if they don't do equal work. But the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And okay, so maybe, you know, we can make some potentially valid arguments for exceptions to some of those things in some remote circumstances. But the Mammon Church doesn't stop there. Instead, they take the Christian ideal of liberty and expand that concept to areas that just make no common sense. And areas that can't be justified by scripture or even by the study of nature, like gay marriage and transgender co-ed sports and female pastors. And why do they do that? All because of the final letter of Mammon Tulip. And this fifth and final theological point is the letter P in there, Tulip. And it really is a, it's a multiple P of sorts because it stands for the pinnacle of all Mammon principles, which is personal peace and prosperity at any price. And brothers and sisters, to achieve that, there is hardly any truth that the Mammon Christian will not ignore. They'll go along with the silliest and most inane proposals by demagogues and Charlatans and crackpots, just so long as their good vibes and worldly acceptance and personal aggrandizement can increase or at least remain intact. 
Uh, and make no mistake, as nice and pretty sounding as uh, and tickling to the ears as mammon Christianity is, uh, it is a one-way ticket straight to the gates of hell. Because, brothers and sisters, remember the Bible tells us that Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. And that's actually his greatest deception, to make people think they found the light, when in fact what they found is darkness. And his intention is to blind men and women to the truth and to corrupt our minds. And he uses our eyes to gain entrance to our hearts. And he parades before us all manner of evil from the, the deluge of pornography on the internet to the endless barrage of the world's goods that appeal to our materialistic impulses. He deludes us into believing that these things will make us happy, fulfilled people when all the while they're robbing us of the very joy that we long for. He wants us to allow more and more darkness into our minds through the books that we read and the movies that we watch and the images we allow our eyes to linger on so that the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ is obscured. But church, we must commit to being careful to what we allow our eyes to see. And we've got to guard our hearts and our souls by guarding those eyes and not just the physical ones, but the eyes of our hearts. Because as we read last week, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for those of us who have been redeemed, the knowledge of that treasure in heaven ought to drive us to our knees in praise and thanksgiving. Because, brothers and sisters, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. And so, yes, I mean, yes, we should preach and speak and work against the worldly mammon church. And yes, even mock them from time to time like the prophets did. But we dare not think ourselves better than they are. Or than the people of Israel. Because scripture is clear in 1 Corinthians 10 and saying, Now all these things happened, happened to the men and women of the Old Testament as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. What? Lest he fall. Fall because you tripped yourself up trying to serve two masters. <laughs> Which is like the rest of the admonitions in the Sermon on the Mount is designed not to frighten the faithful, but to speak right to the heart of those who might think they are saved, but in actuality are not. As Jesus Christ himself cautioned in Matthew 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I want to leave you with that question this morning, brothers and sisters, for you to answer. You may think you know Jesus, but does he know you? And I don't mean cognitively, but he, does he know you intimately? Does he know you as a son or a daughter of the kingdom? Or have you been busy serving two masters and maybe even too afraid to admit even to yourself that you actually like the mammon version more than you like the true Messiah? So I close with Galatians Three, nine. But now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And so, brothers and sisters, my hope for you today is that you won't leave here in bondage. 
Don't leave here today with the mammon of this world blinding your eyes and weighing down your back. But be free today in Christ. Be liberated to serve him and born again to a single mindedness in his word. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the liberty that you bring us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for all the ways that we try to live a free Christian life, but do it remaining in a prison cell. Forgive us for the ways that we willingly hold out our arms to be shackled by the world and the flesh and the devil. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that we can exercise the demons that we like to play with. And so we ask, Father, for a great movement of your mercy upon uh, not only this nation and upon this state and this church, but, Lord, on each individual person, on me, Lord. Change my heart, change my mind, and, and do that, Father. Uh, do that work in this time and in this place that your name may be glorified, that your son may be exalted, uh, that your kingdom may increase. Uh, and, Father, with the work that you're about to do, may the very gates of hell shudder uh, because your son is claiming this world for himself, Father. And we ask that you would just allow us to be a small part of that. Thank you, Father, for uh, promising to call people to yourself. And so if there's even one Lord listening to this message, whether in person or online or in the podcast, uh, call them to yourself, Lord. Let them uh, not stop listening to this until they've surrendered their life to you because your Holy Spirit has moved upon them and called them to yourself. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you're about to do in and through us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.